0: Father, we thank you, we praise you for your great love that you have for us. And we praise you and we thank you that your love became flesh among us in Jesus. And we pray this morning that the wonder of the incarnation might stir and warm our hearts this morning and move us out into faithful action in this world. And we ask this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, Amen. So I did it again this year. I think I did it last year, maybe the year after that, and maybe even the year uh, before that. Uh, I started listening to Christmas music uh, the day after Thanksgiving. And I put the stuff on, and I started listening to it, and I listened to it all week, uh, the week after Thanksgiving. And then the week after that, I was all in Christmas music. And then it happened. Uh, I got tired of it. I got tired of Christmas music, and I, I, this week, we did karaoke, no Christmas karaoke. I, I couldn't listen to any Christmas music this week. I peaked too early. But this morning, I'm back. Like, I'm ready for Christmas. Anybody else here peak early with the Christmas music? Chris, you did, didn't you? I could tell by the way you were singing Joy to the World this morning. <laughs> Ha <laughs> But this morning, we're going to spend some time looking at one of the classic stories of Christmas. So uh, almost all of the the different descriptions that we have of Christmas that we find in our Christmas cards and our Christmas carol and our Christmas music and our, our nativity sets, it's drawn from two biographical accounts of the life of Jesus from the first century. One is one given to us in the Gospel of Luke, and the other is given to us in the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew was an eyewitness of the life of Jesus. And so he sat down and wrote a biography on the life of Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to be talking together a little bit about the story of Christmas given to us in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, of course, the Christmas story is replete with all kinds of mysterious and strange and otherworldly phenomenon. You know, there's the angelic visions that are given to Elizabeth and to Mary, And then there is, of course, the pagan astrologers who traverse the globe uh, to bring gold and frankincense and myrrh and lay it at the feet of Jesus. There is the choir of angels that appears before the socially marginalized shepherds. But, you know, of all of the strange, of all of the miraculous and the mysterious phenomenon surrounding the events of that first Christmas, arguably the most strange the most unique and mysterious is the virgin birth it's the virgin birth now of course modern people ask questions we think well virgin birth you know what what is that all about anyway you know, isn't the virgin, isn't that something you find in kind of the, the, the pagan, the, the Greek mythology? Don't they have virgin births there? And isn't that something that's in the, the first of the prequels of the Star Wars movie? Wasn't Anakin Skywalker born of a virgin? I mean, is that where, is that where Matthew got this stuff, was from George Lucas? I mean, what's the, what's the source of this stuff about the virgin birth? And it sounds strange and, and odd to modern ears. And of course, this... Claim of the New Testament that Jesus was virgin born uh, rattled people throughout the 20th century, and it raised lots of questions and objections to Christianity. Uh, one of them uh, came from one uh, liberal New Testament uh, scholar. Uh, he put it like this: He said, "The virgin birth died as a literal story as soon as we discovered that women had an egg sh- had an egg cell. The virgin birth died as a literal story as soon as we discovered that women." Had an egg cell. Now, of course, I want to ask this guy. You know, what did you do? You think that in the first century they thought virgin births were common? You know, it took the advent of modern science and the Enlightenment to tell us that it took two to tango. No, I mean they knew this from the ancient world. This is nothing new at all. And uh, there was even an article in Christianity Today actually a few years back uh, entitled "Virgin Births Happen All the Time." And this article points out that, the, that asexual reproduction is possible in, actual, in plants and in, in some animals. And so, you know, I guess the article was trying to claim, and so why not occasionally happen in a human? But of course, the virgin birth is not an odd natural phenomenon that happened to occur in the first century. The point of the virgin birth is that it was miraculous. This was the action of the creator of heaven and earth. And he was acting in a very unique and special way in human history. But it does raise the question, what is the significance of the virgin birth? Larry King, you know, that great interviewer who seems to have interviewed everybody who ever, you know, lived in the last 50 years. One time the tables were turned and he was asked, if you were given the opportunity uh, to... Uh, interview one person in history, who would it be? And without batting an eye, he said, I'd interview Jesus Christ. And they said, and what would you ask him? And he answered with absolute seriousness, quote, I'd ask him if he were virgin born, because the answer to that question would define history for me. And he's right. He's right. The great Swiss theologian, Karl Barth, once said that the virgin birth... At the beginning of Jesus's earthly life and the resurrection at the end of his earthly life constitute, quote, a single sign that this life is marked off from the rest of human life. The virgin birth, on one level, it defines history for us. The virgin birth, it marks out Jesus Christ as a singular life out of all of human life. And so this morning, what we want to do is we want to explore together the virgin birth. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard a sermon on the virgin birth. I think growing up, you know, I I read these stories. I heard a lot about it, you know, in in different places, you know, in the manger scenes and the the stories or whatever, but I didn't receive a lot of teaching on it. And so I always wondered, what is the virgin birth about anyway? And so I want us to explore the topic of the virgin birth this morning. And we're gonna look at it from three angles. Number one, we're gonna look at it from the Social angle. Secondly, from the theological angle, and then finally from the personal angle. And as we look at it from the social angle, we'll we'll talk a little bit about the mess of the Virgin Birth, and then the theological angle, the mystery of the Virgin Birth, and then finally the personal angle. We'll talk a little bit about the meaning of the Virgin Birth. And so let's begin. Let's talk first about kind of the social angle, the mess that the virgin birth created. Look at what it says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. It says, now the, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now stop there. So a little word about engagement practices, about marriage, and about betrothal in the first century I think is, is helpful for us in understanding kind of what's happening in, in the social realities surrounding the virgin birth. So in our day and age, if you want to get engaged, what do you need to do? Well, if you are you know, a, a young man who has this woman that you're interested in, you've got to go and you should get a job. <laughs> Hopefully you'll graduate college and you will save up and you will buy a really nice engagement ring. And if you are chivalrous and romantic like I am, you will take your bride to be down to the Queen Mary in Long Beach, and you will take her to dinner there and overlooking the lovely city while you're there on the Queen of Long Beach. You know, you will get down on one knee and you will propose to her. And if you are fortunate, that woman will say yes, and that's kind of uh, engagement in our DNA. But, you know, engagement practices in the first century were very, very, very different from that. To begin with, uh, marriages were, were not, uh, you didn't choose who you were going to marry. Marriages were arranged by the parents. And so they didn't leave it up to some amorous, young, teenage teenagers to figure out who they were going to marry. No, that was way, way too significant and important in decision to leave into the hands of teenagers. You know, parents should really decide this. Amen? Amen. Boo, yes, (laughs) says my daughter. (laughs) But in the first century, marriages were arranged by their parents. I think it was not a bad idea. Now, another fantastic idea. the future son-in-law would provide a dowry for uh, his father-in-law to be, which I think is another great, great practice we should bring back. You know, in our day and age, it's up to the father of the bride to pay for, you know, to spend thousands of thousands of dollars for, for some wedding. And I am really nervous about this, because I have four daughters, and I'm a pastor. And so that doesn't bode well for me as we move forward into the future. But in the, in the first century, it wasn't like that. The future son-in-law would actually have to pay his father-in-law to, be, to marry one of his daughters, which, again, we need to bring this practice back. and. Um, But thirdly, after after the dowry was received by the father-in-law, the deal was sealed. And at that point, when the father received the dowry from the the, son-in-law, the young couple was legally married. And if they wanted to break off the engagement, you know, if you want to break off our engagement, you know, now after you ask somebody to marry you, if you break it off during the engagement season, look, no harm, no foul. I mean, yeah, maybe somebody's feelings are hurt. But, you know, you can break it off without writing any kind of divorce certificate or anything, but not so in the first century. After the dowry had been received, if you wanted to break it off, uh, you would have to write a legal certificate of divorce. But here's here's the thing. Before they actually went through with the marriage ceremony, which lasted about a week, uh, the couple, the young couple, couldn't come together and physically consummate the marriage. And so they actually had to live in separate uh, residences. They couldn't be together during the season. Uh, they weren't allowed to spend time alone together, actually, at all, because this was a serious business. And here's the thing. In the first century, it was a honor-shame culture. And one of the the, 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 the things that, that, that you realize here is Mary now gets pregnant during this betrothal state. So between the time when dad has accepted the dowry, and yet they're not supposed to have consummated the marriage, and yet Joseph in the state gets word from Mary, I'm pregnant. I mean, could you imagine what was that conversation like you know, she sits down with Joseph, and uh, Joseph is like, who, who, who was it? Who was it? I saw you giving Benjamin those eyes. I, it was Benjamin, wasn't it? It wasn't it, you know? And she says, no, no, it's not what you think. It's not what you think. I became pregnant by a miracle of God. And Joseph just looks at her like, can you come up with something better than that? I mean, Mary, I know that you're pure and all of that, and, you know, I love you, and you're great, but... And, and Joseph now is just heartbroken. And he is lost in kind of this world of confusion, and he's wondering what to do, you know, the, what would be expected of him from his parents and from his siblings and from his cousins and aunts and uncles and from just about everybody in the village. If your bride-to-be was discovered pregnant, what you would need to do is publicly disgrace her Publicly show everyone that this wasn't you who acted shamefully, and you would, sh- you would save your family, you would sh- save yourself from public shame. But here Joseph, he's like, I can't do that. I don't want to publicly disgrace Mary. And so he wants to put her away quietly. And as he's, he's wondering about all of this, he goes to sleep. And in his sleep, an angel comes to him in a dream. Verse 20. And behold, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 21 She shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And then look down in verse 24, and when Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, what I want you to see is that the virgin birth for Joseph and Mary created a real social mess. It actually brought them into this place where in a small town village where word traveled quick, that they were disgraced, that they were dirty, that they were bad, that this child was illegitimate and and what's going on there with Mary and Joseph. And, And all of a sudden, Joseph, in order to embrace Jesus and Mary into his life, he actually has to bear public shame that he cannot excuse away to people around him. And the angel appears to Joseph. He challenges him, and he says, Joseph, I know you don't understand, and I know this obedience is going to cost you something, but Joseph, you need to take Mary and make her your wife. And Joseph does exactly as the angel says. You know, what the text highlights for us is that in the midst of this social shame, of the social mess, is it highlights for us Joseph's costly obedience. In fact, uh, as the story of Christmas progressive, the angel is going to appear to Joseph three more times in our story. And three more times, the angel is going to issue to Joseph a difficult command. And three times, every time, in every case, the difficult command will be met with Joseph's costly obedience. Now, I just want to pause here, and I just want to make this point, because I think that the author, as he's telling the story of Christmas, wants to highlight for us that one of the things that it means to follow Jesus is it means that you are willing to embrace a life of costly obedience. One of the things for you and I to welcome this Jesus into our life is, is to welcome into our life a call that sometimes is difficult, that it will sometimes require deep sacrifice that's painful for us in order to obey and to follow this Jesus. I was studying this text this week, and I don't know why, but I remembered from years ago. I mean, probably three decades ago. I remember driving in my car. I was listening to a preacher on the radio. I think it was Charles Stanley. I don't know if anybody here remembers Charles Stanley, an older preacher, you know, from years ago. Yeah, from the South, you know. But I can remember in this sermon. It's the only thing I ever like. it's kind of like lodged in my mind. I don't know why, but he said he, he said in the sermon. He says you need to obey God no matter what. Obey God no matter what. And then he says, if God tells you to plunge your head into a brick wall, you ram your head into a brick wall. He says, obey God no matter what. And you know, that, that sentiment is actually embodied in flesh and blood in the life of Joseph. Joseph embraces a life of costly obedience. And all of us at some point in our life will be called into costly obedience. Jesus put it like this If anyone desires to come after me, let them deny themselves, take up the cross, and follow me. You know, very often, obedience to God will save you a world of heartache you know, if you don't drink and drive, it will save your life. You know, if, if, you, if you remain faithful to your marriage vows and, and you love your spouse as Christ loved the church, you will have a rich and vibrant marriage. There, there are times in your life where obedience leads to this rich and full life. But there are other times where obedience actually will cost you something. And I think oftentimes in American Christianity, we forget this or maybe we neglect this or we willfully neglect this. We kind of screen this one out, this call to costly obedience. I was thinking this week about, um, uh, I I was talking to my daughter, one of my daughters yesterday, and I noted the fact that I, I just, I slather my toast in butter. So we have Kerrygold butter grass-fed cows, you know, just like good, it's clean, good, clean butter, and it's salty, and it's delicious, and I have in my mind, because at some point, um, I remember uh, back, you know, when um, the, I read this book, uh, Grain Brain, it's like the whole thing about how gluten and bread and all that stuff is just bad, you know, And, um, and one of the things that it highlights in this book is that fats can be really good. You know, so so breads, gluten, you know, carbs bad, but fats, you know, good, clean fats, you know, this is good, you know, and I and I've had that it lodged in my mind that butter is good for me. (laughs) Now I've somehow I've welcomed bread back into my life, and now it's just covered in butter. And then I I remember a while back reading some studies on coffee, you know, and they're kind of of the jury's out on on whether or not coffee is good for you or bad for you, but the studies that I choose to believe are the (laughs) studies that say that coffee is good for you. I read a study not a while back that beer is good for you, and I believe it. And we tend to screen out those things that we don't want to hear, and we tend to accept you know, those things that we actually want to hear that coincide with how we already want to live our lives. And I think we can do that in our life with God. We can screen out the hard stuff and we can put in its place, you know, some nice cliches that we embrace and so, for example, you know, uh, there's, there's all kinds of cliches we've grown up with. I remember when I was uh, growing up, there was a, a way of presenting the gospel that began with this question. Did you know that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Is that true? Does God have a wonderful plan for your life? It depends. It depends on what you mean by Wonderful. If what you mean by wonderful is the American dream, that God is gonna give you an ever-increasing standard of living, that he is gonna prevent you from having sickness or illness or any kind of pain in your life, then no, that's not what the Bible teaches. In this world, you will have tribulation. Sometimes you will have tribulation in spite of living an obedient life. Sometimes you will suffer tribulation because of your obedience to God. Sometimes, you know, you you wanted to be married, but you never found the right person that actually you felt like shared the values of the kingdom of God, and and the cost you're bearing is loneliness. To obey God sometimes is costly. It is costly to practice hospitality with your home. It's costly costly to reach out and invite your neighbors in. It's costly to adopt foster care uh, or to bring foster kids into your home. It's costly to give more of your resources away to meet the needs of the poor in this world. Obedience to Jesus is costly. And what we see at this first Christmas, what we see, you know, first in the virgin birth is that when Joseph invites this special, unique child into his life, when Jesus comes into his life, it is a life of costly obedience, and this is what we're all invited into. But let's move on. Let's move on from kind of the theological or the, the social angle, talking about kind of the mess of the virgin birth. Secondly, I want you to notice something of the mystery of the virgin birth. And I just want to reflect with you for a couple minutes on the theological angle kind of, 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 of this passage. So let's go back in the text to verse 20 and look at what it says. And I want to bring this phrase up for your attention. It says, But he considered these things. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. He says, For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, what does it mean, though, to say that the child in Mary's womb was from the Holy Spirit? I mean, this, this sounds a little bit odd. Like, what are we even talking about here? Is this kind of like the Greek myths? I mean, what is this, what is this? What is this all about? You know, but what I want you to see in this passage is that... This idea of the virgin birth is not rooted in Greek mythology. It is rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. You know, New Testament scholarship, you may not care about this, but I'm going to tell you anyway, in the 20th century was by and large, it, it, was, it was marked a lot of times by uh, skepticism that came out of sections in Europe that were anti-Semitic. Uh, in fact, um, prior to the rise of Nazi Germany, there was actually a lot of scholarship coming out of uh, Nazi Germany. And a lot of the scholarship wanted to strip the scriptures of their Semitic origins. And that has been recovered in the last 30, 40, 50 years with the New Testament scholarship. People have come to see that actually the New Testament authors, their playbook was not the Greek myths or the Romans or whatever. Their playbook was the Old Testament scriptures. And in fact, this idea of the virgin birth Matthew draws from the Old Testament scriptures. Look at what he says in verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, here he goes back to the prophet Isaiah. But when he talks about the the life-giving work of the Spirit to bring this child, he could have actually gone back beyond Isaiah back to Genesis 1. Because in Genesis 1, what do you have? In Genesis 1, in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, and it says the the earth was formless and void. And then it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And the effect of the brooding, hovering work of the Holy Spirit over the primordial darkness was physical and biological life. A little bit later in Genesis 2... There's a pile of dirt, and God forms from the dirt, as the story goes, man from the dirt. And then he breathes into his, light, into his nostrils the Spirit. And the Spirit of God, as it, as it were, hovers over the dust, and the dust becomes physical and biological life. The result of the life-giving work of God's Spirit in the early accounts of creation was biological, physical life. It was the first Adam. And here the Spirit of God, like the Spirit hovered over the waters in the beginning, is now hovering over the womb of Mary, and the result is physical, biological life. The result is the second and greater Adam who comes not to plunge the world into sin, but to take the world out of its sin into glory and the love of God. Now, I used to think... I used to think, you know, when, when, I, when, I, when I thought about the virgin birth uh, back in the day, I used to think that the, 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 the Holy Spirit contributed the divine parts, you know, and Mary contributed the human parts. And so what you got was the God-man. Did you think that? You did, didn't you? <laughs> but listen, the work of the Spirit from what we see in the early accounts of creation is not some superhuman kind of amalgamation of this God-human thing. Instead, the work of the Spirit produces physical, biological life. The work of the Spirit is to call into being true humanity. And so first, what we learn from the mystery of the incarnation is that in Jesus Christ, we discover true humanity. He is full and complete humanity. You know, very often I think when we think about Jesus, we almost think of him like Thor. You guys remember Thor? I was reading an a, uh, interview this week with um, Stan Lee, who created the Avengers, you know, the comic books and whatnot. But he said this, uh, he described the creation of Thor like this. He says, how do you make someone stronger than the strongest person? And he said, it finally came to me. You don't make him human. You make him a god. And of course, in his imagination, he imagined, you know, the gods looking like, you know, the great uh, uh, Norse heroes, you know, with flowing beards and horned helmets and battle clubs, but listen. Many of us, we think about, you know, the virgin birth and what came into being was kind of like this superhuman kind of thing. But actually, the result of the virgin birth was true and full humanity. Jesus Christ is 100% human. He is not part man and part God. He is fully human and fully divine and his divinity in no way diminishes his humanity, and his humanity in no way diminishes his deity. Rather, he is fully God and fully man. God comes among us as a full and true human person. And yet it is God who is coming among us in this full and true human person. As all of the best Christmas hymns declare again and again, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. And then what comes next? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. And then he reverses and he says, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. In Jesus Christ, there is full humanity and full deity. God comes among us as a true and real human person. Or as N.T. Wright said, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that the fire has become flesh, That life itself came to life and walked in our midst. Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world, or it's a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play-acting. And then he says this, most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between." Have you condemned yourself to live in the shallow world in between? In between ignoring Jesus and writing him off or falling at his feet and giving your full and complete allegiance to him as the King of kings and Lord of lords. The first Christmas and the, the mystery of the virgin birth is an invitation to come out of that shallow world in between. And to live lives like Joseph of full surrender to God and of complete and glad obedience, even when it's costly, because this is no, this is, this is no mere religious figure in history who is just substantial. This is God who has come among us and who is worthy of all of our worship, of all of our obedience, of all of our praise and our deepest trust. So we've seen the the mess, we've looked at it kind of from the social angle, we've seen the mystery, looked at it from the theological angle. But finally, I want to talk to you just briefly in closing about the meaning of the virgin birth and kind of talk about it really from a personal angle. So, You know, we skipped over verse 22 and 23, but I wanna draw your attention back to it. Look what he says. This is really Matthew's commentary on this whole thing. All the drama surrounding Joseph and Mary and the birth of this child in shame and humiliation, all of this, you know, resolving to divorce her quietly, but then reconsidering when the angel appears, he says, verse 22, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. If I could sum up the meaning of Christmas in one word, it is this word, Emmanuel. This is the best word of Christmas. Friends, this is the best word of Christianity, that God is not off watching us from a distance, but that God has actually come to be with us. And he's come to be with us along the road that sometimes is very difficult and hard. You know, one of the things that just occurred to me, it was kind of like an epiphany as I was reading this text, is as I looked at each one of these four moments where Joseph meets the challenging word of the angels with his own costly obedience, at each step, when he takes Mary into his life, thereby producing shame for himself and his family and probably being ostracized socially. And as he runs as a, as a refugee from the, Violent hand of Herod, and he has to take his young family, as probably a young 20 something, maybe late teenager, and take his family down into Egypt. I mean, could you imagine making that journey? Running like, you know, a Syrian refugee or something, hunted. And this is what Joseph had to do because he has this Jesus in his life. And then, of course, he has to make the, the journey back and eventually land in Nazareth, which is really a podunk, kind of low-income, blue-collar town. At each stage in the journey, when Joseph is making these difficult decisions, the one who is with him and who is his partner in costly obedience every step of the way is Jesus. You know, later on in Jesus' life, one of the reasons for ridicule over Jesus is the circumstances surrounding his birth. At one point, the religious leaders come up and mock Jesus and say, well, you don't even know, we know who your father is. You don't know who your father, kind of like, you're you're a bastard, Jesus. And they mocked him. And of course, Jesus, his whole life was lived as a marginalized, blue-collar, itinerant, rabbi, before that, a blue-collar worker who ultimately dies the death of a common slave. He is our partner in costly suffering. And so the good news of Christmas is that in whatever place in your life this week where you are called to take a step of costly obedience, you do not take that step alone, but God is with us. God has come to be our partner, our brother in suffering. But Emmanuel doesn't only mean that God is with us. Emmanuel also means that God is for us. He shall save his people from their sins. The true and living God, get this, has attached himself forever to the world that he has made. Let me say that again. You, I mean, like this, is, <laughs> like, this should stretch our minds at Christmas. The true and living God the ground of all being and existence, the one in whom all things in heaven and on earth have their being and are held together. This God has forever attached himself to the physical material world that he has made so that his own life, so that the life and the future of God's own self might be somehow attached to the world that he has made so that in God, in Christ's own death on a cross, his resurrection from the dead, he might take his fallen creation with him on this road into our suffering to pull us out of suffering and sin and death and darkness and bring us with him on our way to resurrection. And this is what Christmas means. Don't you see, this is, so, this is so much better than tinsel and gifts under the tree and Christmas lights and God bless Christmas music and bells, Jim. <laughs> but this is the wonder of Christmas that has broken into our reality, that has invaded this world. The love of God made flesh in Jesus to attach himself forever to us in love, so that God might not only be with us, but that God might be eternally and everlastingly and infinitely for us. Amen. Let's pray together. great Father, we thank you, we praise you that you have not left us alone, but you have come among us so that you might be the God who is with us and for us. God, I pray this morning for everybody here who might be in places where they have been called into costly obedience. God, would you remind us of what you have done for us in Christ? Would you make us aware of your presence beside us as we take these difficult steps in the path that you have called us into? And for those in this space this morning who don't know much of costly obedience, I pray, oh God, that you would rattle us this Christmas, that you would wake us up to what is really happening around us in this world and all of the places that demand our sacrifice and our generosity and our hospitality and our kindness that demand us actually living lives of costly obedience. God, wake us up and then empower us by your spirit so that we might go forth in this world and live as your faithful disciples bearing the cross and looking ahead to resurrection, amen.